So we mentioned last week in beginning the chapter that uh, really there's three sort of themes that are coming through to Peter 2. Peter's talking about the methods of false teachers as well as the character of false teachers as well as the end of false teachers. And we said that these things, these themes are interwoven and rightly so because the truth is, is that that's how it is in real life. As we mentioned last week, you could begin to practice the methods of false teachers and find yourself conforming to the character of false teachers. Or you can ignore the end of false teachers, what's going to happen to them, and think it's not that big of a deal to follow the methods of false teachers. And just to be really clear, we want to explain who he's referring to. He's talking about the, those who would say they are followers of God, those who would take God's word and they would use it, or I should say misuse it, to influence people to follow them instead of following Jesus. They might even do that in Jesus' name. They might even do that in a way that makes you think, oh, well, they're Christians, so they must not ever lie or do anything wrong. They must be trustworthy. And they want to twist, they want to deceive because they have their own selfish motives. And so Peter, as a good shepherd who follows the good shepherd, wants to make sure that we're warned. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. He wants to make sure that we understand what's happening here. So last week we talked about the methods of false teachers. We talked about the kinds of things that they do that we want to avoid as much as possible. And this week we're going to talk about the character of false teachers. And I, I have to confess, right from the get-go, I was really sobered by this. Because I realized as I was kind of trying to sum up what these things are, how easy it is for us to get sucked into this. It made me realize that this is not like some deep diabolical plot that these guys are in some dark room somewhere planning, whoa, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. It's something that you slip into. It's something that you kind of fall into, you're, you're pulled into, and we're pulled into it because we have hearts that, well, they're naturally, they're, they go away from God. They don't want to follow God. And I was really sobered about what this, the character is that these guys display and how easily I could fall into this. And so it's important as we talk about these things to be sober-minded, to realize, except for the grace of God, so go we. So that we don't think, well, you know, those people are so bad and we're not that bad and we don't get puffed up in thinking that we couldn't fall into these things. It's also important not to excuse these things, not to say to ourselves, well, yeah, that's not a good thing, but come on, everybody blows it. I think as we go through these three points that I want to make, I think that we're going to see, no, these are non-negotiable issues. These are non-negotiable character issues that God would call every follower of Jesus to pursue. So in talking about the character of false teachers, here's what I want to give you guys this morning. I want to give you two things they don't do and one thing they can't do. So let's pick it up in verse 10. Peter writes, describing these guys as those who especially, those who, notice, walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. They walk according to the flesh. Now, when we talk about that, this idea of walking according to the flesh, when we talk about the flesh in the New Testament, it's not just talking about like flesh and bones, like our physical bodies, okay? When the Bible talks about the flesh in the New Testament, it's talking about what we're like naturally. You might say it's our natural, sinful nature. It's that part of us, that natural part of us that's broken. That affects us physically. That's why we die. We, we die because we're born sinners. We're born to die. But the reality is, it's talking about more than just our physical nature. It's talking about our spiritual nature, who we are apart from Jesus. Now, when it talks about these walking according to the flesh, in one sense, yes, as believers even, we can find ourselves walking in the flesh. And the Bible warns about that. But this, these guys are talking about, it, it, it seems to be speaking of and teaching those who are confident in their flesh. They're confident in their natural ability. They're, they're glorying in it. 
And, and what's important to understand about this is this goes directly opposite towards it, totally contradicts both the teaching and example of the New Testament apostles, of those who followed Jesus and wrote down the New Testament for us. In fact, take this out. It'll be on the screen. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Paul writes this. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Nothing good dwells. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't say, you know, I know in my flesh, I can do about 80%. I'm going to have to ask Jesus to do the rest. No, he goes, no, I know in me, nothing good dwells. He says this, Paul writes this in verse, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, we are the circumcision. That is, we are those who are set apart for God. That's a euphemism for that. We are the circumcision who f- worship God in the Spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and notice, have no confidence in the flesh. You see, what God calls us to as Jesus followers is not to trust ourselves. Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Zilch. Nada. Nothing. We're to have no confidence in the flesh. And yet these guys don't just kind of fall into thinking, oh, i got to do it myself like we do. These guys go, I can do this. I can do this. Me. And they push self-confidence, and they push self-esteem, and they push self-focus. Confidence in the flesh. But also, notice, this sort of confidence, what else it is? Check it out. It says in verse 10, they walk according to the flesh, unless they're uncleanness. And it says, notice, despise authority. It says they're presumptuous. They think they're always right. They're self-willed. And it says this, notice, they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Now, you may have a note in the margins of your Bible that says glorious ones. It's important. He says in verse 11, Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now, the point that Peter's making here is that these guys, in their pride, what they do, listen, is they speak against persons greater than themselves. And initially, what he's talking about here is probably angelic beings, angels. Now, I'll tell you why I think that. Listen to this. This is uh, Jude, Jude's little postcard epistle. In Jude 8 9, Jude talks about a similar thing. This is what you might call a parallel passage. Listen to this. Listen to this. Jude, speaking also of false teachers, says, Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, speak evil of dignitaries, same word, glorious ones. Yet notice Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not to bring, an, not to bring uh, against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now let's, let's camp here for a second and talk about this. One of the things that both Peter and Jude are talking about when it comes to false teachers is they speak against authority. Specifically, listen, they are not they are are not hesitant to act as if they have um, they can kind of tell angels and demons what to do. Now, here's where this gets tricky. First of all, let me explain what's going on in Jude. Jude is referring to, he's actually quoting what we call an apocryphal book. A book that has some historical things about God's people, but is not inspired by God. It's called the book of Enoch, okay? And he's quoting the book of Enoch, and he's talking about uh, basically this situation where Moses dies, and what happens is the devil seems to come, and don't forget the devil is not opposite of God. The devil is a fallen angel, more opposite of Michael the archangel, okay? So the devil comes and he wants to take uh, Moses' body. This is how the story goes. And the, uh, Michael the archangel says, uh, uh, no, uh, this body is going to be reserved until it's resurrected, so you can't have it, basically. And so there's this contention. And the point is, is not... Whether or not that happened or not, or it's just a, just a picture, what Jude is doing is saying, listen, this shows something. It shows that even Michael, who's an archangel, a high-ranking angelic being, even he does not say, hey, hey, back off before I slug you one, you know? I'll hit you with my wing, you know? He, he doesn't, like, choose on Satan. 
He says, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, he doesn't act like he has all this great authority. He defers to God's authority and says, God rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Now, the reason this is important is, and we're not going to get totally into this today. It would take too long. Is that there are... There is a truth to understand. There is a truth that as followers of Jesus, we have a certain authority. So that you see, when Jesus did his ministry, when he walked the earth, he cast demons out of people who were demon-possessed. Also, when he gave, sent out his disciples to do ministry, they cast out demons from people who were demon-possessed. So they exercise authority over demons. We're not saying that's wrong. That's biblical. That's fine. But what these false teachers were doing that Jude and Peter are talking about was they were basically speaking about these demonic forces, these angelic forces, as if they had all authority and they could kind of send them there and send them there and they could sort of, they could get into things that, well, the Bible just doesn't talk about. And what's interesting about that is is that nowadays we live in a, a time when People's attitude, I'm talking about Christians now, people in the church, their attitude towards the demonic or the angelic is one of two errors most of the time. One is they want to act like none of that stuff is real. You know, it's just kind of symbolic, it's not really true, and they ignore the reality of demons. And so they just want to ignore that, oh, that's not true, that's just the way the Bible describes mental illness and we, you know, uh, really, we know that uh, now that really it's not anything demonic. It's always mental illness. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, we, we have people in this church who have experience. They have training and experience with dealing with mental illness, and they will tell you not all mental illness is demonic. They'll probably tell you also some of it is, but they'll tell you and not all of it is. It's just true. It's just not. But there's a reality that, listen... There is a reality to demonic beings and what they want to do. The problem is false teachers think they know stuff that the Bible never says. And they begin to act like they have an authority that the Bible never gave them. Now, here's some of the ways I see this happening today. When people want to claim that a situation is based upon a spirit of something, now, there are spirits of, like the New Testament talks about spirits of infirmity. Uh, so there are evil spirits that can cause sickness. That, that's a fact. Uh, there can be spirits that, that do tempt us towards evil things. There's no doubt spirits can draw us or want to trip us up in these things. But what they end up doing, they start, they start blaming situations in our lives on demons. Oh, the problem is not that you don't have any self-discipline or that you have a big issue with lust. The problem is there's a spirit of porn. You have a spirit of porn. No, you have a bad habit that's sinful that you need to repent of and get rid of your computer so you don't do it anymore. And they want to sort of speak about things that they have no clue about. And it causes people to not trust the gospel, but to trust in some authority that they think they have or they think that those false teachers have. Are you guys following me so far? Now, if you're a visitor today and you have no clue what I'm talking about, that's okay. Because one of the other extremes happens is people want to talk about demons and stuff way too much. They want to focus on stuff the Bible doesn't talk about. But here's something else about these guys, okay? In their pride, speaking evil of powers greater than themselves, it also has this sort of application not just with demonic beings, that's, I think, that's the immediate context, but with even... Uh, God-ordained human authority. And there are several human authorities that God calls us to submit to. Check it out. This should all be on the screen as well. Uh, parents are a God-given authority. The Bible says in Ephesians 6.1, you can, in fact, we read Ephesians 6.1 to 4, it gives you the whole context. But in Ephesians 6.1, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. First scripture we had our kids memorize. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's right that we honor our parents. Now listen, I guarantee you when Paul wrote that to the church in Ephesus, he wasn't naive to the fact that not all parents are great parents. But he was wanting to say to the Christian young people who would hear that message, listen, it's good that you honor your parents. Also, what about this? Employers, that would be the application of Titus, 
as well as other parts of the New Testament that talk about the same thing. Titus 2, 9 and 10 says this, exhort bond servants, you might say employees, to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity or trustworthiness. And this is why, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now, it's not forbidding uh, labor unions for fighting for rights. We're not saying that's at all bad. But what we're trying to say is this. The Bible talks about human authority. God ordains human authority. One of the indications of false teachers, part of their characteristic is they don't want to submit to human authority. Even governments. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 13. Listen, he says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority, notice, except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Think about this. Paul wrote that when the Caesar who had just come into power was Caesar Nero, the same guy who would end up persecuting the churches in very severe ways. So if the guy you you for didn't get put into office, you still need to honor them. I see the smirks and the grimaces all across the room. (laughs) But it's true. And what about this? Here's my personal favorite, pastors. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, obey those who rule over you. This is for sure talking about pastors. You can tell by the context. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as they as those who must give accounts, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So the context is making it really clear. As pastors, this is why we take this job very seriously. Adam will talk more about this next week. But as pastors, we know we give account to God for your soul. Which is why we don't want to hold back. Which is why we want to be upfront, honest with you guys about what God says. This is why we want to call you to repentance and faith. But it also shows that pastors often experience grief and not joy in their pastoring. And the Bible says, submit to your pastors. Now listen, one of the characteristics of false teachers, I think we might have even talked about this, is how the false teachers will want to emphasize their own authority and not God's authority. Our job as pastors is to say, here's the authority of God's word. We want to hold you to this authority that you would trust the God of the Bible, that you would follow after Him. This is why it, is, can, be, it can be grieving when, when you're trying to try to get people just to, to walk with God, to trust God, to, to follow God, and they just push back and push back and push back and slander you and slam you, and it happens. It's difficult. Where does all this stuff come from? It comes from our own carnality. It comes from our own hardness of hearts. And the false teachers uh, epitomize this. But also look at verse 12. Not only do they sort of, they have confidence in their own natural ability and they speak against powers greater than themselves, but also, listen, their arrogance in their ignorance. Look what it says in verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand. When he talks about natural brute beasts, it's this idea of, when it says natural, it means like uh, those who are, um, it means those who just basically are only doing what their nature allows them to do. So again, walking in the flesh. When he talks about being brutes, the word for brute there means unable to reason. Unable to reason. One of the characteristics of false teachers is they don't challenge you to think. They just want you to feel. Oh, just feel it. Can you feel it? Come on, can you feel it? They don't challenge you to think. Where the scripture is very, very clear that us being changed into Christ's image means that we have to engage our reason. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How we think, what we think has to change. Now again, listen to this. This is again Jude's little postcard epistle, Jude 10. It'll be on the screen. But these, again speaking of false teachers, they speak evil of what they do not know and whatever notice they know naturally. 
like like brute beasts, in these they corrupt themselves. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that spirituality or spiritual maturity is, is equal to intellectualism. I'm not saying that. Intellectualism, that is depending upon your intellect, you know, I'm going to depend upon my ability to think and be smart and be clever, that can be just as carnal as emotionalism. Okay, so I'm not saying that. But what I'm talking about, listen, what Peter, I believe, is talking about is this mindset. What Jude is talking about is this mindset as, guess what? They just think, hey, what, my, what I experience is what's important. My experience is more important than what God says. And so the tendency with false teachers is, and those that get influenced by false teachers is, listen, they measure Scripture by experience, not experience by Scripture. I'll say that again. They measure Scripture by experience, not experience by Scripture. We're supposed to measure our experience by Scripture. Now, we're going to have experiences. If we're walking with God, we better be having experiences. Joy inexpressible and full of glory is an experience that God desires us to have. A peace that surpasses understanding is an experience that God desires us to have. A heart that fervently loves one another is an experience that God wants us to have. Every single one of us. But we judge our experiences by the Scripture, our Scripture by the experiences. You guys follow me on this? And a wisdom that says, let's go by our experiences is the wisdom that James describes in James 3.15. He says, this wisdom does not just descend from above. It's not from God, but it's earthly, sensual, based on the senses, and demonic. This is what false teachers bring out. This is similar to what was going on in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church who Paul did commend for, in a lot of ways, they fell They fell short of no gift. They were open to the things of the Spirit. God did some powerful things among them, but they were horribly carnal. And that carnality was shown in part by the fact that they did put their experience, what they were experiencing with God, above what God actually said. That's why when Paul says, listen guys, you need to get some order in your meeting. There's certain things that should be done and not be done, and things should be done in a certain way. He says to him at the end of that section in 1 Corinthians 14, Or did the word of God come originally from you? Did you guys write this thing? Or was it it only, uh, uh, or was it you only that it reached? He says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, that is, walking by the power of the Spirit, then let him acknowledge that the things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But notice, if anyone is ignorant, let them be ignorant. The word for ignorant there, same word that Peter uses here about not understanding. It means that they speak uh, evil of things they are ignorant of. It's the same Greek word. So now what Paul's saying echoes what Peter's saying, and that's this. Listen, that these false teachers, what they're going to do is, they're going to think, hey, here's what my experience is. I know it's got to be of God. Have you tested it against the Scripture? And this is often where people get pulled away. Do you guys realize that when the... the, the, uh, the great missionary movement was happening in the 19th century, early part of the 19th century, that this is when you started seeing public schools springing up all over the place and education happening to all over parts of the world where there was no education, literacy increasing. You know why? Because those people who are full of God's Spirit, who believe God's gospel, knew that people couldn't understand it unless they were literate. They didn't just say, just feel it, baby. Well, they went in the power of the Spirit. God did miracles and radical things, but they want to make sure people were literate. False teachers love illiteracy. I met with a, a brother, and I'm going to say it's a brother. I'm not going to say his name because I believe he's a brother who pastors a local church. I met with him recently, and he said to me, he says, are you, are you like, a, like a theologian? And I said, no. He said, I love theology, though. Good theology, that is. You know, I love Scripture. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm really just into Jesus. I'm really into theology. Now, I'm not trying to slag this guy off. That's why I'm not saying his name. But it grieved me when he said that. And I thought, man, dude, be careful. Because if you don't understand what God says about himself, that's what theology is. If you don't understand that, how are you going to lead God's people? How's it going to happen? No, 
what we need to do is we need to be those kind, kind of men and women who recognize, no, God wants us to test our experiences by Scripture and hold fast that which is good. So here's really how I'm summing up this whole first section, the fact that they're confident in their own natural ability, the fact that they speak against powers, that they're greater than themselves, and the fact that they uh, are arrogant about their ignorance. I want to sum it up this way. Here's the first thing that false teachers don't do. They don't pursue humility. Notice I said pursue humility, not that they're not humble. Because humility is one of those characteristics that as soon as you think you got it, you don't have it. <laughs> A false teacher isn't pursuing humility. They're not looking to humble themselves. The kind of pastors and teachers that God calls us to be, and you can pray for Adam and I to be this, are the kind that are pursuing humility. We, we are fully aware that we can have no confidence in our flesh. It's only going to cause damage. We are fully aware that there are powers and authorities greater than us, and we might get things wrong. We want to submit to governing authorities. Sometimes it's difficult, because sometimes governing authorities aren't in our favor. But we know we're supposed to do that. We don't want to be arrogant about our ignorance. We want to learn, constantly learning. Because we know that we need to, to grow in our walk with God. No, but false teachers, they don't pursue humility. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, listen, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's why James says, therefore, humble yourselves before God. That's why the scripture says in 1 Peter, Peter said in 1 Peter, he said, listen, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Submit to his authority. And what do you do? How do you do that? By casting all your cares on him. God, you reign, you rule, you're Lord. I'm going to humble myself and say, God, here it is. I, I, I can't do this. Apart from you, I can do nothing. But Lord, I want to humble myself and say, I can do all things through Christ. I'm going to humble myself and say, Lord, I can't produce any fruit, but I believe you said, if I abide in you and your word abides in me, I'll ask what I will, it shall be done for me. I'll bear much fruit so that you're glorified and I have joy. I'm going to humble myself. See, humility that God wants us to pursue, the humility God wants us to pursue is not self-abasement. It's not, I'm so horrible. I'm such a bad, I'm a bad, bad person. It's not thinking less of yourself as much as thinking of yourself less. It's, reckon, it's reckon, recognizing uh, there's no good thing in me, in my flesh. I don't have any confidence in my flesh, but I want to have all confidence in God. I want to humble myself. Let's not forget, listen, because of God, who God is, God's holy. He's perfect. And because He's holy, we should be humble about our brokenness. His holiness should humble us about our failures. We should be going, wow. He calls me to be perfect, and I fall so short of that, and I should be humble about that. But also, listen, the Bible teaches that our God is humble. Do you know that? That Jesus humbled himself and became a man. He humbled himself. Our God, our God, listen, shows submission. God the Son submits to God the Father. And he calls us to follow that. Therefore, listen, in our successes, we should be humble. Oh, Lord, I, I'm not even near where you want me to be yet. I want to be like you. I want to be like you. You're my humble king, and I want to be like you. But false teachers, and those that follow to false teachers, they don't pursue humility. So, quickly, moving on. Look at verse uh, 13. He goes on to say, listen, and these will receive the wages of unrighteousness, known as, as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Now, the first characteristic, they don't pursue hum humility. That's the first characteristic of false teachers. They don't pursue humility. Second characteristic is this. Listen, they don't practice repentance. When it says, listen, they are those who count it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime, it's basically they're arrogant about their sin. 
they celebrate their own carnality. In fact, it's interesting because Peter goes on to say, here's what they do. He says they are spots and blemishes. Notice, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Let's think about this for a second, okay? This, This feasting with you is probably a reference to what the early church often did was these love feasts. They would have like a bring and share, you might say, and that would be kind of either begun with or culminated in the Lord's Supper. They take communion together, okay? And these guys would go to this church gathering and they'd be completely carnal and they'd celebrate in that carnality, celebrate in the fact that they were living in openly sinful ways. It's interesting that Peter talks about the fact that these are spots and blemishes. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Again, it should be on the screen. It says, Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. In other words, when Christ saves us, he doesn't leave us as we are. He washes us clean. Notice this, and that he might present her to himself as a glorious church. Notice, not having spots or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy, and notice, without blemish. This is what Christ does for us. It's not us scrubbing ourselves. It's Christ washing us clean, okay? Think about this. Peter's saying these false teachers, they are happy to be what Christ died to wash away. Think about that. Paul also talks about this idea of celebrating your your carnal uh, ways, your sinful ways. When it comes to the love feast, listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this, he says, Therefore, when you come together at one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying, in other words, it should be that, but it's not, because here's what you're doing. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the other, and one is hungry, notice, and another is drunk. What? Do Do you have not houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? What was happening in the church at Corinth was they would come together for this love feast, and instead of kind of waiting, giving thanks, Part of the the purpose of the love feast was to make sure that the poor people got a big, full meal once a week. Don't forget, in that day, poor didn't just mean you couldn't go on holiday. Poor meant you didn't know if you were going to eat that day. And so basically, the early church, one of the things they would do was, when they all came together, they would make sure that they have these feasts so so that these poor people knew what it was like to be full. Can you imagine living your whole life and never know what it's like to be full? Some of you girls who diet know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) You just never filled up because there's never enough to eat. And so they had this love feast to show God provides. And we shared together. But what was happening in Corinth was they come to this feast and what happens? The rich would go ahead and they just pork out and all they would just stuff their faces. And they would take this wine that was meant to be shared in communion as something that would remember the Lord and, and they would just pound and pound, and they get drunk. Can you imagine going to a church bringing chair where people are eating like gluttonously and pushing other people out of the way and poor people are embarrassed to eat and people are getting drunk? Would you stay in a church like that? This is what was going on. This is what Peter's saying. Hey, this is going to happen. He's warning them about this. They don't pursue humility, but also, listen, they don't practice repentance. Hey, let's be honest, all of us have been gluttonous. I mean, we plan for gluttony, if we're honest. That's what Christmas is about usually, isn't it? Let's plan for gluttony. We've all been gluttonous, but hopefully we're also repenting of that. Hopefully we're also realizing, now I need to be careful. Probably many of us here have been drunk. Maybe some of us have been drunk as Christians even. Hopefully we've repented of this. See, these guys aren't practicing repentance. They're going, party on dude, this is great. I'm free in Jesus. I can do what I want. No, you can't live that way. You're celebrating sin that Christ died to remove from you. You're not practicing repentance. In fact, these guys, far from what the Bible encourages to do, that those that fear the Lord should hate sin, hate evil, these guys love sin. 
Check it out. Look at verse 14. It says they have eyes full of adultery. Ladies, have you ever felt like a guy is, what is the word? Is it oogle or ogle? Anyway, they're just staring at you, looking, trying to look down your blouse, checking you out, and they're not trying to not do that at all. Ever been creeped out by a guy like that? These guys were like that. They were doing that. They weren't even trying not to do that. They were living openly in lust. Now, obviously, girls can do that as well. But guys tend to be, I think, more tempted that way. But the reality is these guys were not just doing that. They didn't just have eyes full of adultery, always thinking lustfully about women. Also, listen, they, it says they cannot cease from sin. Literally in the Greek it says they are unrestrained from sin. They're just going for it. In fact, it says, notice, they entice unstable souls. So these guys weren't just tempted with sin. We're all tempted with sin. There's, not, there's probably not a guy here who isn't tempted to look with lust. Probably not a girl here who's not tempted to look with lust. We all are tempted with that. But these guys aren't just tempted. They are practicing this. They are pursuing this. And also, listen, they are enticing others to join them in the process. In other words, they're not practicing repentance. The Bible talks about, in James, James makes it really clear in James chapter 1. He says, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. So all of us, because we're sinners, we're going to be tempted to do things. Even the things that these false teachers do. But he says they're tempted when they're drawn by their own desires and enticed. So they can't, you can't just blame like false teachers for this. It's your own sinful nature. But look, notice it says, then when the desire has conceived. In other words, when you said, yep, that's what I want. It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, what does it bring forth? Death. We are all tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. I'm not talking about sinlessness. I'm not talking about the fact that you never want anything sinful. We all wrestle with these things because we're still sinners. But the false teachers don't repent. They don't turn away from that. They don't practice repentance. We are called to practice repentance. Turning away from our sin. Ah, sorry, Lord, forgive me for that. I want to follow you. I want my eyes on you. Interesting, too. It says in verse 14 that they have a heart trained in covetous uh, practices and are accursed children. We'll talk about accursed children in a second, but their heart's trained. Notice that word trained. Because Paul uses that in a positive, not in a negative way, but in a positive way, into, um, uh, where am I? Yeah, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says we should exercise, same Greek word for trained, we should exercise yourself towards godliness, that is, being devoted to God. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Now, you, you put these things together, and here's the reality. You are either training your heart to follow sin or training your heart to follow God. Guess what the false teachers want to train you to do? They train themselves to follow sin. Specifically, they're training themselves, listen, how to fraud people successfully. It's, it's, it, these guys are good. False teachers are good at frauding people. That's why they have Lear jets and 12 cars and massive buildings. They're good at frauding people. Don't get me wrong, just because sometimes a big church does not make them a false teacher. Don't think that. But there is this reality that these guys fraud people for money all the time. They're good at it. Why? They're not willing to practice repentance. Hey, Pastors are just as prone to covetousness as any of the rest of you. The difference is we're supposed to set examples of repentance. So, you guys remember, uh, in fact, you'll get to it if you're reading the Bible plan that we have as a church, but in 2 Kings, we talked about Naaman uh, uh, maybe a couple months ago, I think, 
And Naaman was this uh, Gentile um, army leader, a Syrian army leader, and he had leprosy. And no one could heal Naaman of his leprosy. And so he has uh, a slave girl who's an Israeli, and she says, oh, if you could only go to Israel, there's a prophet in Israel who could heal you. And so he goes to Israel, and he goes to see Elisha, and Elisha doesn't even come out, just says, go wash yourself in the Jordan. And you know the story, he kind of gets frustrated. But eventually he obeys, he washes himself in the Jordan, and he's completely healed of his leprosy. And then he thinks, I'm going to give the guy who healed me, I want to give him a reward for that. I want to pay him richly. I'm going to give him gold and silver and all these things because he brought a healing to me. And Elisha sends away and said, look, no, keep your gold, you know, just follow after God. But Elisha's helper, you might say his assistant pastor, Gehazi, <laughs> decides, what? This guy's offering you some serious bank and you're going to turn it down? He healed him. So here's what happens. It says in 2 Kings chapter 5 that Elisha said to Gehazi, after he goes, he goes over to, to find this guy, Naaman. He says, oh, my master sent you. He takes all this money with him to keep for himself. And Elisha knows about it. So it says, then Elisha says to Gehazi, did not my heart go with you when, you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Answer is No. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. Now, I want you to think about this. This guy, Gehazi, was assistant to Elisha, a, a prophet that was used more powerfully than any other prophet in Israel's history, as far as miracle, miracles and stuff go. But because he loved money more than he loved God, what ended up happening? He does this, only, we only have recorded that he did this one time, he does this one time, and he says, okay, you have leprosy the rest of your life. You're unclean. That means no more ministry, no more worship. You're separated from God's people. Whoa. And yet, we will kind of turn a blind eye to these guys on the God channel who are begging us for money and telling us that God wants us to be rich and they are telling us to love money. We'll turn a blind eye to those guys because we think they're powerful. No, they're false. And this is what Peter's trying to get at. He's saying, listen, these guys, they don't practice repentance. They have hearts trained in sin. They want to sin. They don't want to repent. Some of the guys that are on, say, like the God Channel, some of the things, some of these guys have said very blasphemous things, very wrong things. Like they've preached doctrine or taught doctrine that is totally bogus, Okay? Now, I will say this. There's been times when I've said things that were totally wrong. I have taught things that were wrong. I have. But when I'm called out on that, some of you guys might have experienced this. By the grace of God, it doesn't happen that often. But when I call about it, I will come back next Sunday and say, you know, I said this. That probably wasn't accurate. I probably gave the wrong message. That's not really what God teaches. So forgive me for saying that. That was wrong. And I'll come out and say, I was wrong. And a lot of these guys will say all kinds of weird, crazy stuff and never come out publicly and say they were wrong. Or maybe they'll say, yeah, maybe that was a bit off. I shouldn't have said that. It was off the sort of moment. And then they'll teach the same thing three weeks later. Are they practicing repentance? No, they're not. They love their sin. That's the problem. We're almost done. Verse 17. This is the last verse we're going to look at today. I told you there's two things. I'm talking about the character of false teachers. There's two things they don't do. One thing they can't do. Two things they don't do. They don't pursue humility and they don't practice repentance. But here's what they can't do. They can't provide hope. They can't provide hope. Peter says, these are wells without water, they're clouds carried by a tempest. Wells and clouds have two things in common, water. And water isn't just a nice thing that we can have. We think of wells now. If someone says, oh, well, we're probably thinking of, oh, a bubbling spring that's refreshing and beautiful. Because we live in England and it's wet all the time. I mean, they give a hose bed if it hasn't rained in three days. It's crazy. So, so we, we don't understand this, but this was a desert culture. 
And when you needed wells because when you traveled from place to place, you traveled across deserts, there was no hose pipe, there was a well. And you were dependent upon that well, or you couldn't get your destination because you would dehydrate and die. It was that serious. So a well without water wasn't just like, well, it's not very refreshing. It was like, I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it to my destination because I came to this well hoping I'd make it to where I was supposed to go, and there's no water there. That's a false teacher. He's a well without water. A cloud pushed away by a tempest. Now, this is speaking of storm clouds. Sometimes storm clouds dump a lot of rain. In fact, what happens oftentimes in, the, in, in, uh, in Palestine and in, in the Middle East is when they do get a storm, that sometimes those storms can be so fierce and so heavy in a, such a short amount of time, it ruins the crops. It just, just decimates the crops. So it's not, they, they might get rain, yeah, there's some whoosh of rain, but what happens? The crops are wiped out, and that means, guess what? People starve to death. So when he's talking about these guys, don't think he's talking about they're less than they should be. He's talking about these guys bring death. That's why he says, listen, for whom it's reserved the blackness and darkness of darkness forever. In other words, these guys are lost. Now, go to the last slide, guys. Not the servant search slide, but the, where it says 1 John chapter 3. Go to that slide. John says this. He says, Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And notice, everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Our false teachers purify themselves. No, we just saw they're not practicing repentance. Why are they doing that? Because they don't have any real hope. They're hoping that what they can get out of Jesus is a better life for themselves now. Some of them at least are honest enough to preach that. They preach your best life now. They have no hope. The hope that John writes about in 1 John 3, the hope that I'm going to see Jesus as he is and I'm going to be made like Jesus so that I can actually love God the way he deserves and love people the way he calls me to and know what I was created to be. I'm going to have that. That's my hope. These guys don't have that hope. And because they don't have that hope, they can't give any hope. In fact, here's really what these guys are. These guys are great at practicing religion, but there's no real life in them. Paul talks about these guys in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Listen, he says they're headstrong. Remember, presumptuous, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Notice, having a form of godliness, they seem like they're devoted to God, but they deny its power. What power? The power to actually change their life, to make them holy, to make them love people as better than they love themselves. And from such people, what does Paul say? Turn away. Don't be their buddies. Don't send them money to support their ministries. Turn away. Jesus himself said this in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Done many wonders in your name? And Jesus says, then I will declare to them, notice, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Not I knew you and then you kind of got off base. I never knew you. You were never saved in the begin with. Talking about the characteristics of false teachers, that they don't pursue humility, they don't practice repentance, they can't provide hope. Hopefully as we're hearing this stuff, as sobering as it is, as unpleasant as it is to share, hopefully as we're hearing this stuff, we're thinking, yeah, let's stay away from those guys. They're dodgy but hopefully also we're examining our own hearts. Because let me ask you some serious questions. Are you pursuing humility? 
or are you pursuing self-confidence? I want to be confident in me. I'm going to do it. Are you saying, God, no, I need my goals to be your goals, and I can't meet your goals without you. What do you want? Are you practicing repentance? I'm not asking if you're sinless. I know you're not. I'm not sinless. None of us are sinless here. I'm, I'm reasonably sure y'all sinned this morning already. As did I. But are you practicing repentance? When, when it's exposed that you've actually not done what you're supposed to do or you have done what you're not supposed to do, do you say, sorry God, forgive me for that one and make it right where you can make it right? Are you practicing repentance? Because listen, unless we are willing to do those things, unless we're willing to pursue humility by the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, unless we're willing to practice repentance by the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, not only do we have no hope, but we can't offer anybody else any hope. I know it's sober and stuff. But I don't want to be a false pastor. I want to be a true one. I want to tell you guys, not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. Trust me. I've been getting kicked all week from this. <laughs> it's challenging preparing this. Go, man, Lord, where am I at? But people need to hear and see demonstrated the true gospel. People need to know the love of God is real. That he loves people. He sent his son to die for people. He can change people from the inside out. And they can't see that if we're not going to be willing to humble ourselves. If we walk around smug or self-confident, they're not going to see or hear the gospel unless we pursue humility. They're not going to see and hear the gospel unless we practice repentance. Unless we recognize, look man, I could fall into the same sin you've fallen into, but I had to turn to God. I've got to keep turning to God. That's what we're calling you to do. You can trust this God. You can turn to him. I wonder if any of you here today are here and you don't know that God. You don't know this Jesus that we're talking about. Maybe, maybe you're in this place. You've maybe even been involved in some pretty powerful things, man, in the name of Jesus, in the name of church. You've been under the influence of some of these kind of guys. But you don't know God. I can tell you, God wants to know you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants to change you from the inside out. 